0: This is Graham Scott here, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast.
1: Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I am your host, Jay Hersko, and joining me to, with me today, we have a repeat guest, uh, the guru of throughput accounting, the man who just put out the book, Practice Makes Profit, a small business owner's guide to making more money by not working harder. Mr. Graham Scott. Graham, thank you so much for joining us again.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me back on the show, Jay. I'm glad I didn't blot
1: my copy book last time. <laughs> no, no, no. You did. A, it was fantastic last time. So, So let's dive in. So the, and, and we, we kind of briefly touched on this when we had our first conversation, but you actually built it into an entire conversation, right? And, and the backdrop of the book is you speaking with a dermatologist. So you're, we, we said in the last show, you're a classically educated accountant, but you also use a lot of these three-foot yeah. accounting principles when it comes to working with your clients to find the, the best thing that they do, the, the best thing they should spend their money on, right? Um, which is kind of, kind of something you really don't hear about fairly often which is kind of wild yeah
0: I think um, the whole the whole thing about this is to me the principles the philosophy behind theory of constraints and throughput accounting make such common sense but I don't know why it's just not out there as common practice. Um, I don't know if if the the way it's told to the public doesn't doesn't resonate or or quite what it is. So what I wanted to do with this book is make these principles available to people in a way that they could relate to. A lot of short stories, analogies, examples of how you can use these principles to massively make a difference to your business. And I think, yes, it's based around small business practice, but I think most people will see the analogies. And I think this is an area that small business can teach big business about.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we've all, all of us that have spent time, any of you, any of our listeners that have spent time in these giant enterprise behemoths, um, you know, we typically throw good money after bad and we'll, we'll optimize things that are away from the constraint. And those listeners that remember our whole series on the Takasans, right, the theory of constraints uh, series that we did last year. Um, it, you're really just basically throwing money down a well This really what you're doing. Um, so in the book, you start with, you're talking to a dermatologist named David. And he, yes. um, and, and for those of you that don't know what a dermatologist is, it's someone who works with skin, skin problems, right? Uh, carcinoma, it could be warts, it could be lesions, what have you, right? Um, and mm-hmm. what starts as just a, co- a quick conversation, you actually walk him through um, the, the focusing steps and you get him to, and yeah. we were talking before we started recording where some of these things, I guarantee, when Hyde said he stopped and went back and went, well, duh, like why, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I think of that? And and that's the part of the narrative that to me really jumped out because it, it makes you in, like you said, in the small business context, understand how to apply a lot of this stuff. Um, So the first thing let's talk about is the idea of a bottleneck, right? So maybe there there might be a chance that our listeners didn't listen to the previous series, but the idea of a bottleneck when it comes to theory of of constraints is there is one constraint in your system, in your process. And that is the thing, which is uh, your rate determining step. That's how much comes through your process is dependent upon that one thing. And like we just said, any money spent not optimizing that thing is kind of just money wasted because no matter what you do. That's going to be the, uh, that's going to set the pace, right? The goal, the gold, gold, gold rat, drum, buffer, rope. Um, it's, um, and then you, there's a quote you have later in the book, which, uh, which to this point, I think is very appropriate. Where you said, if it doesn't help the bottleneck, don't spend the money.
0: Yep.
1: Right? If you're not going yeah. to optimize the bottleneck, don't spend the money. Go on, Graham. Yeah.
0: And just it's the, the, the right that you can get work through the bottleneck determines the output of the whole system. That's that's the whole thing. And unfortunately, we have this idea that if every part of a system is efficient, is productive, then the whole system will be productive. And that's that's just not the case. Uh, If you have non-bottlenecks working overtime, all they do is overload the whole system. You end up with work in progress everywhere, and the whole system just grinds to a, to a halt. And the whole lean movement is based around keeping that work in progress right down, right across the whole uh, organization. I think TOC takes it, has a slightly different slant, and says you actually do need a bit of work in progress, a bit of buffer in front of the bottleneck, because you don't want the bottleneck to ever stop working. What you need is excess capacity feeding the bottleneck so that if something breaks further up the chain, it can catch up.
1: Right, right. And and that ties to another quote you have in the book where where you said you want your constraint to be efficient, but your non-constraints to be effective. So the constraint needs to be operating. Like you said, there needs to be a buffer. It needs to be almost smooth sailing. But the other systems, it's okay to have... Um, a non constraint sit idle. And that, Graham, for all of our listeners that are in knowledge work, that is like the hardest thing to impress upon the people we coach, we work with, we deal with. All they see is when, when you look at people as resources, right, as fungible yeah. um, 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 tokens, right, um, <laughs> What you what you do is you say, well, I'm paying however much an hour for that person, yeah. and I can't afford to have them sit idle. So let me go have them do the other thing, and you actually use an example in the book where you say you have this star developer who, because we don't want him to sit idle, he goes off and does other things, which ends up with a bunch of half-cocked work, and then yeah. all it does, like you said, is it, it mucks up the system.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this was um, on one of the courses where I, I teach this stuff. We had uh, a guy who was a, a senior developer, team leader, and. He came on the course convinced that he was surrounded by idiots, and what he needed to do to fix that because he was overloaded, he needed to go and hire some more idiots. So, the, <laughs> the, the first question I always ask people when they complain about their staff is, "Why do you hire idiots?" And of course, they say, "Well, we don't hire idiots." So obviously, the follow-up question is, "Well, what do you do to turn them into idiots? To turn them into <laughs> idiots?" And uh, yes, there's usually a, an eye roll and a, and a, a blinding uh, flash of, of insight as to what's happening. But when, when you've got people that feel they need to be busy all the time, they will start pulling work forward that is non-urgent. When they get stuck, they were going to this team leader, he had to drop urgent work and fix their problem because he didn't want them to be idle and often what would take them three or four hours to fix, he could do it in half an hour. So it was more efficient for him to do it. And yet mm-hmm. as soon as he did that job, it was taking him away from the efficient stuff. But the worst thing was it was freeing them up to go away and cause more problems for him.
1: Right, they just went back to the well, grabbed another ticket and created and more grabbed Something
0: else that wasn't urgent and stuffed that up. And then it ended up in his entry.
1: So, so it, and, and this is one of the steps. So the, the first thing that anyone listening should think about is you need to think about finding that bottleneck. That's the first thing, right? Yeah. Find your constraint. And that is the most yeah. important step. And in your example with the dermatologist, David is the bottleneck, right? He is the doctor performing the, the procedures. So he is the bottleneck. Yeah. So you need to keep him busy. Uh, And I think if I recall correctly, one of your, the scenario is you start talking about scheduling, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one, one one of the issues is when you start talking about bottlenecks to people, they'll often say, oh, we've got bottlenecks all over the place. And if I'm getting into strict theory of constraint language, yes, you have bottlenecks that sometimes wander around. But the absolute bottleneck, the thing that is your real uh, big bottleneck is always referred to as the constraint. And sometimes it's, it's not obvious where it is. And you think about where should it be? And basically, unless David is on the end of a scalpel or a laser, the business is making no money. So when, when we talked about this, it was obvious to him that he was the constraint. Before we started talking like that, his constraint was operating operating space, it was nurses, it was all over the place. And the example I use in, in the book, which I think um, really resonated with him because it was one of his stories, is he was also working part-time in the local public hospital and some of the uh, board board of director members were wandering around the hospital and they saw a couple of porters who sitting around having a chat. So obviously uh, there was excess capacity in porters, so let's fire some and we'll save some money. And it's that cost accounting mentality mm-hmm. that creeps in, that is does so much damage. So of course what happened, they fired a couple of porters and then within a week or two, there was a crew of operating surgeons, nurses, anaesthetists, scrubbed up, ready to go, and there was no one to bring the patient to them from the wards. <laughs> so a whole operating, um, you know, procedure got got bumped. So this is why you need excess capacity, so so that that sort of thing doesn't happen. And once David realised he was the constraint, we could then start making sure that his operating slots, his four-hour operating slots were absolutely full. And it was, it was little things like he had wonderful reception staff who were very customer-focused. So they would open up more operating lists rather than fill one properly and then open up another one. If that one didn't suit a patient, they just open up another one and open up another one. So instead of getting, you know, four procedures done every operating slot, he was averaging about three. Now, they were leaving a little bit open because sometimes he has to do emergency stuff. Someone comes in and there's a very nasty, perhaps skin cancer. They don't muck around with those. So he needed to leave some space for that. And then, of course, you get a few people who are sick on the day or, or don't turn up. So it's, it's easy to see that, you know, perhaps a quarter of his time was being wasted. So the first thing was to, to fill that up. And, and that by itself made a huge difference.
1: That, um, you know, we talk about pull-based systems in Agile, right? Yep. Agile lean, pull-based systems. Um, by creating that, I think he called it, <laughs> excuse me, I think he called it the short notice patient list, right? So the people who could, yeah. if there was a cancellation, yeah, I'm not doing anything, I'll come in, I'm available. Um, he yeah. literally was created a pull system. So he was pulling yeah. forward in order to fill his availability, um, which I thought was like, again, if this is your constraint, you want to keep it busy. Any any time of the constraints, yeah. it's idle is profit lost, revenue lost. Yeah. So keep it busy. And then, right on the back of that, you had a conversation, which I, I really think everyone who's listening in the, in the agile space should, should think about the idea of finding the optimal mix of procedures, depending upon yep. the duration and cost, to maximize yeah. not only your throughput, but your profit. So, yes. we in, in the agile world, you know, uh, Mick Hurston talks about in project to product your flow distribution. So, the work that's coming through, what type of work are you actually doing? And there's he boils work down into four separate separate buckets. It's new features, it's defects and bugs, it's Mm -hmm. risk compliance, and it's technical debt. And like David, if a team chooses to work on all of one type of patient, all one type of work, there are downstream ramifications to that. So if you're only doing new work, you're never fixing any of the defects. Eventually, you're going to develop yourself into a corner. If you're only doing defects, You're not developing any new product. The platform dies in the vine. So much like where David is trying to maximize his throughput and his profit, um, our listeners think about the work that your teams are doing and how that balances out, because you don't want to develop yourself into a corner. You don't want to sit too, you don't want to be spending too much time looking backwards, only doing technical debt. You need to find that mix of, again, because the throughput of the new features increases profitability.
0: Absolutely. So once you've identified your constraint, um, to me, it's a two-step process. One is fill all that time with 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 work. And a um, friend, friend of mine was telling me that he uses a personal trainer. And he was chatting to the personal trainer. And he's busy in the mornings, busy in, in the evenings, but he's got three or four hours in the middle of the day where he does nothing but drink coffee. So... Uh, Carl suggested to him, he said, well, why don't you offer some of your clients who are working out once a week a second session for half price? And, of course, as soon as they're, they're doing that, uh, so he offered them six weeks of a second session a week. Of course, their results just went up threefold. And he was then able to upgrade them to full, full noise uh, payment. So first thing is fill up your capacity and I suspect that for most of you in the agile world that's not a problem at all. But <laughs> yeah, the that's the stage other way. Is, <laughs> it's, okay. So, so the, there's a bit of curating but we'll come to that in a minute. Um, so the second stage is make sure that all your time whether it's operating whether it's personal training whether it's writing code you're doing the maximum value stuff. And that's when, when we went through all the procedures that David did and we worked out how much money he was making on a per minute basis, some of these procedures were worth four times as much as the others. So for him to maximize his profit, he needed to change it. Well, it was a, it was a mixture of changing, changing the mix of procedures that he did and trying to do more high-end stuff, but also just bumping the price up to make it worthwhile on some of these low-value procedures.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Again, if it's if he's the constraint and his time is limited, you want to maximize yeah. that within reason to make sure that you're um, as as profitable as you can afford to be while still generating yeah. new work. And that ties to one of the words you used already, which I'd like to go into now: the idea of a buffer, the idea, the yeah. concept of of. Um, some of us in the agile world here think of it as slack in the system, but um, one of the examples you gave as a buffer, which I thought was kind of wild, is the massage therapist and the massage chair,
0: which yeah. I thought was
1: a an amazing, amazing example.
0: Okay, so this um, this was a lady who she's got a, a massage studio set up with a table there, but she'd been offered some work whereby she could go out to corporates and bring people in for. Uh, a massage while they were at work and for that she had a special one of those I don't know if you've seen the chairs but you sort of slump forward and there's a hole to put your face in and you relax there not quite as good as a table but much more portable now she worked out that optimum time was probably about 20 minutes in the chair by the time someone's she's got more relaxed it takes them a few minutes to get out of the chair and for her to wipe it down and for the next person to come in and it meant that her throughput she should have been in 20 minutes it would be ideal to put three people through but she was only able to get two through because instead of her being the constraint the chair was the constraint so you know having an a An accounting background my first question was how much would a second chair cost (laughs) and you know it was something like 450 new zealand dollars um what's that 300 odd american dollars something like that basically she could pay for it within two or three weeks have two chairs side by side she didn't have to hurry the person who just finished out they could have another five or 10 minutes sort of relaxing, which meant they felt like they were getting value, but it wasn't taking her time. And she could switch from one to the other and get her output from two an hour
1: to three an hour. Which is so, a simple again, what a lot of this is like, duh. Like, why wouldn't yeah. I think of that before? But we're not, we're not taught any of this stuff.
0: No. And you know, it's so often when you're right in the thick of it, you can't see the forest for the trees, mm-hmm. and uh, you need, you know, some examples like this perhaps to get you thinking um, outside your normal normal way of thinking.
1: Uh, and you tied that to uh, David's example with the autoclave in his office. Where, yeah. uh, you know, for those listeners who don't know what an autoclave is, you got to run all your uh, tools through that machine. It's used super high heat to to um, clean things and to sterilize everything he decided a second autoclave will keep his speed up and he also and i think later in the book he goes back to it to say he's actually building in redundancy as well in the event that something goes out he he has a a a a, a resource i think it's a resource buffer for that particular use case
0: yeah so the the autoclave was they were getting towards the end of their their use by date and renewing them was was really a, a risk factor because if they went down he would have to stop operating. Uh, one of one of the questions, once we got him up to sort of an average of about four procedures per operating slot, I said to him, well, what would it take to get to five procedures? And, you know, I said, can you cope mentally? And he said, oh, absolutely. Look, when I'm in the zone, when I'm operating, I, that's my happy place. He just loved being there. So he wasn't the problem. And then he proceeded to tell me that, regulations had changed and they used to be able to do a thing called a, a flash sterilization which was relatively quick and he could turn the instruments around quickly but the new regulations said they had to sit in the autoclave and be blasted with high pressure steam for at least an hour. So what was happening if his procedure only went for 45 minutes the time that he'd saved was being lost, waiting for the instruments. So, again, the question, well, how much would a set of instruments cost? And, you know, this is a guy who spent 15 years training. He's lived <laughs> on the bones of his backside for so long. You know, he still is struggling to get round to, to realizing that he's actually got lots of money. And so he said, Oh, you know, they're, they're quite expensive. They're about three grand. And so I just <laughs> I just kept quiet and let him think. And you could see the wheels turning. And he said, I need to get some more instruments, don't I?
1: And, <laughs> and 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 yeah, keep going, keep going, Graham.
0: Yeah, so you know, for he would recover that, you know, within a week and a half. And it was it was profit from there. And He's, it's the sort of business that has a lot of overhead cost. He's got to rent rooms. He's got receptionists. He's got nurses. He's got all sorts of you know, uh, insurance costs, obviously. So it might be taking him two and a half procedures every time just to break even. So the extra procedure he's getting makes a massive, massive difference to his profit
1: it's absolutely amazing to think about and and on the back of you talk about in the book on the back of buying a second set of instruments buying a second autoclave you hit on one of the things that i think is is so paramount um he talks about the the example you give in the book is the tool layout where yeah. he has to have his tools laid out in a certain way because he works a certain way yeah and you know he again this is probably another one of those dumb moments where he said i need these laid out in a certain way and i believe your question to him is well, why do, can't you teach someone else to do it? Yeah. And he kind of took a beat and said, "Well, I guess I could just give them a card and show them how it's laid out." And yeah, that ties to your remark of have the non-constraints do as much of the constraint work as possible. And yeah. I—that's I, one of the—that's another thing where it should go on a, on a billboard and every dev- development yeah. shop in the world, right? Like, um, have the people, like, if, if his training and his experience makes him the constraint, right? If there's things that he doesn't need to do, don't have him do them.
0: Yeah, <laughs> a, a blinding flash of the obvious. If, have you got your, you know, top, top people, your highly paid people who should be your constraint, um, doing things like, you know, taking computers out of Paper, uh, you know, cardboard boxes and things like that. Uh, what can be done by other people? And so, one of the other things that was slowing him down is sometimes the nurses couldn't keep up with him. So, again, the idea: well, let's have an extra nurse. Oh, oh, but they'll be standing around doing nothing for a while. And you know, like, so what? It it doesn't matter. But the instrument layer, he has these things. Uh, can't remember the technical name. They, they refer to them as loops. They're basically magnifying glasses that sit in front of his glasses because he's staring at really um, intricate stuff. So he needs to just be able to reach over and get the instrument and know it's going to be there. And if it's not, he's got to refocus and, and do things. So to have that running smoothly and relatively simple for him to lay out the instruments for each procedure, take a photo, and build a library of that so that the, the nurses could do that. What we also found is that when he had an extra nurse there, instead of him having to sit with the patient while they recovered and make sure they were coming out of the anesthetic all right, someone else could do that. So it's, it's about, you know, what, once, once you've got the constraint, figured out what it is, what work are they doing that can be offloaded to other people? making sure that uh, everything's there ready for them. And I think um, you refer to full kitting in the agile world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So full kitting is making sure that everything's there. You don't have to stop and do it. And I heard a lovely analogy from um, Derek, who's in the U.S. Air Force the other day, and he was talking about chefs like Gordon Ramsay. And I don't know, are you familiar with, with
1: Jamie Oliver? Yes. The English chef. Okay. So, was he the barefoot chef or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Naked chef. Naked chef. That's it. I knew it was something where clothes was missing. I I was close. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, he's got a lovely series, you know, 15 minute dinners. And I know that if I buy the book, there's no way I can do it in 15 minutes. He does it on TV because everything's pre prepared. His cup of flour is already measured out in a bowl. He just tips it in. His Half a teaspoon of salt is measured out in a little container. He just tips it all in. Everything's pre-prepared. And so, of course, he can put it together in 15 minutes. Right, There's no way I can do that. It'll take me 15 <laughs> minutes just to find the ingredients in the pantry and the fridge.
1: Right. <laughs> right, right.
0: So it's, it's that concept. Get everything ready to go. So once you start the job, you can complete it as much as possible.
1: It's the same. Uh, my brother is a restaurant guy up in New York, and it's the same what they do in, in chef's kitchens, right? Like yeah. you have your mirepoix on a certain place, your flour, your egg wash. Everything is yeah. laid out in a particular way at almost every station so that you can yeah. swap back and forth. And you don't like like you said, it, it's like the, the guy wearing the loops on his eyes. Yeah. You don't have to stop and say, wait a minute, where is the flour? Where is the yeah. carving knife? It's there and it's in a place where you expect it. So you can just, you can move. Um, The other thing about having the non-constraint do do as much as the constraint work as possible. We just had an episode where we talked about the book Team Topologies. And one of the theories in Team Topologies is you should um, lay out your teams to minimize cognitive load, right? So there are certain things that um, you shouldn't have to know in order to really do your job well. You shouldn't do them. For example, um, if I'm a really, really great um, iOS developer, I shouldn't really mm-hmm. need to have to understand. I shouldn't conceptually understand, but I shouldn't need to do every day plugging in the, the deployment module to make sure it writes to the correct environment, right? That's something cognitively I shouldn't be able to do. I shouldn't have to do. Um, mm-hmm. That may be a butchered example. There's definitely somebody yelling at their phone right now. Um, but the, the point being is, you need to concentrate on the high value work that you do. And your high value work for that person is writing iOS code. So that's what yeah. they should be most most concerned about. Not the yeah. how do I get the code in the right environment, or all the or all the switches in the correct order, so it'll work.
0: Yeah, not the peripheral stuff. It's it's right. the you know the the money shot, the stuff that's going to bring in the in the money. And I mean, I'm an accountant. And I talk about um, money a lot. If you're not making money in your organization, then sooner or later you're going to go broke, and everyone's going to lose their job. It's it's part of the process. You've got to have happy people. You've got to have happy customers, and you've got to have a happy bank account.
1: <laughs> there you go. All three. All three. All all right, and I'm three. glad you brought up money because that um that takes us to one of the later passages in the book. Um, and I I pulled up the quote earlier where if I don't spend money on the bottle, I like don't spend the money at all. Where mm-hmm. um, Mark has an LED der- uh, dermoscope. Right? Can we can we talk about that and how you guys how you walked me through the logic where this actually does make sense? Yeah, yeah, Um,
0: yeah. David David came to me and um, because I we we got through that. First of all, you want to spend money only on the bottleneck. And if you've ever wondered why you've spent a whole lot of money trying to get the organisation to go better and nothing changes, nothing hits the bottom line, it's probably because you're not spending it. On the bottleneck. That's your leverage point. That's, that's where you go to start with. So, first of all, you know, spend money there if you have to. But the, the key is don't increase your bottleneck capacity until you've fully utilized what you've already got. That's that's your free capacity. And just by thinking about are we using it efficiently, are we use well, are we using it effectively? That usually gives you a bit of a bang for the buck. Then you want to spend perhaps a bit of money on protecting the bottleneck, but don't increase capacity um, and, and, until you have to. Anyway, David came to me and he said, "Look, I've there's this opportunity um, mole mapping, and I'm, I'm not sure you know what it's like where you are, but down here in New Zealand the sun is pretty brutal, skin mm. cancers are a real problem, and." They change relatively slowly until they don't. And the idea with mole mapping is you go and you strip off, this machine takes a photos of you digitally, and then you go back a year later, and it can track any of your moles that are changing and are likely to be or, or potentially cancerous. So it was a huge investment, and it didn't help him as a bottleneck at all but what it did do is it gave him a source of income that didn't actually need to go near the bottleneck mm. every other part of his business had to go through him so it was important that he was as effective as possible this was one of those things that it was a source of income that would bypass the bottleneck so as far as he was concerned it was free money and once he got once we, we went through the figures it made absolutely perfect sense and once he got that going, trained some uh, staff to run it, he was able to go on vacation and make money while he was away. <laughs> and that was the first time that had happened for years. Uh,
1: if we should all, we should all be so lucky to make yeah. earning income while we're on vacation. And I, yeah. and I think you even talked about in the book how it, it downstream, it made his life easier because when someone did have a problem, he had a history yeah. of where he had to look so yeah. you want to talk about increased throughput, he knew he could sur- literally, pardon the pun, surgically target where he needed to go because he yeah. had that reference point already built in. Yeah, he
0: could. Um, I mean, what, what tends to happen with, with these things is the doctors don't want to leave anything behind. And it might be a relatively small mole, but they carve out a huge hunk of flesh just to make sure they don't leave anything behind. Well, with this with this new technology he was able to limit the damage and especially if the mole is in you know on your face or, or is visible mm-hmm. you know people really don't like big ugly scars on them if they can avoid it
1: <laughs> my dad had one taken out of his head and it looked like they went at him with a melon baller like i'm like yeah. dad what, is, yeah. what the hell happened to you <laughs>
0: Well, and, that, and that's them just making really, really sure that there's nothing cancerous left behind. But with, with the better technology, he can do a, a nicer, cleaner job that's just as safe. And of course, uh, some people are willing to pay extra so that they don't have you know, those huge holes in them.
1: <laughs> right, right. Um, and to that end, you talk about um, there's four things you should spend your money on. Uh, and and everybody who's listening, get a pen and write these down. The first thing you should spend your money on is things that increase constraint productivity, right? If cloning ever becomes a thing, David's got an option there, right? Um, Things that increase the money, the constraint earns during productivity. That's things like the autoclave, things like the extra nurse, the tool alignment, things that can protect the constraint from being idle. So that's filling the funnel, right? Filling the schedule to make sure that he is busy at all times, yep. and then this is the last one, which we just talked about: things that earn money without consuming constraint capacity. So this is that yeah. quasi passive income that he's got coming in that downstream yeah. also provides additional value on on top of, like you said, earning money while you're on vacation. That's yeah. really and, a kind of cool thought.
0: Yeah, and he also uh, they were selling a few, you know, creams and gels and various things at reception, and so they'd never really focused on that. So now they have a much wider range of things. And, you know, the receptionists are not exactly pushy, but they're certainly mentioning it to people a lot more. It's, you know, not
1: huge amounts of money in the big scheme of things, but it all helps. Right, right. Every little, every little bit helps. Um, The last, the last thing you talk about in the book, Graham, which I think is really important and everybody should be so smart to do this with the customers, the idea of curation. Can we talk about um, how he did some of his curation regarding like patient demographics and for lack of a better term, non-benefit added, non-value add customers? Yeah,
0: yeah. So the idea of um, curation comes from, uh, well, sorry, basically the whole process is the theory of constraints, five focusing steps. So find your bottleneck, Optimize it, um, then coordinate everything so it's as nice smoothly into the bottleneck. Uh, collaborate, and that is the word we use to mean offload everything to other people that you possibly can, and then curate. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second, but the next, next step after that is um, upgrade. So once you've got your bottleneck running at full capacity and everything around it going, then that's when you add the turbocharger or you know buy another developer or something like that. And then the last thing is start again. It's an ongoing process. Just check that now that everything's running really well, your bottleneck hasn't shifted. But so the, the curate bit, in a museum, they will have hundreds of thousands of things but they can't all be on display. You might have a tenth of what is available actually out on display. And the curator of the museum, their job is to decide what not to display. And I think that's a real key. So for David, he was it was about deciding what procedures he wasn't going to do anymore. They just weren't worth it for him. He didn't enjoy them. And the most important thing was probably deciding which customers he didn't want to work with. And we had a conversation for him. If he's doing the job properly, the patients he sees are really, they're not repeat customers. He deals with their problem and off they go again. But to get in to see David, he has GPs, general practitioner doctors who are referring him Their patients when they have a problem. And I said to him, you know, do you ever look at a patient referral, see the name of the doctor at the bottom, and your heart just sinks? You know that that person's going to be trouble. I mean, certain doctors they attract a certain class Mm -hmm. of patients, and you know that they're the ones who aren't going to turn up for surgery. They're the ones that aren't going to do all the follow-up instructions, so there's going to be complications, and they're the ones who won't pay. And he said, he just rolled his eyes and said, oh, yeah. So stop seeing them. Stop dealing with them. And, you know, for someone who's in healthcare, the idea of turning people away, that was a bit of a head shift. But most of what he does is not life and death. And there are other options available in town. And one of, the, one, of, one of the other options in town he doesn't particularly get on with. So the idea of sending all his troublesome patients down the road to see him really tickled his fancy. <laughs> and of course, he was also worried that the staff, I mean, a lot of nursing staff, receptionists, they're all very caring people and he was worried that there would be a bit of a backlash from them about turning patients away. But the type of patients that he was looking at turning away, they were really happy because they were the ones that had to deal with them.
1: Right, chase them so, down for payment, chase them down to make sure they're doing for, their post-op. It's more work for yeah, them and stress for them. It just—it—it—it—it it, 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 um, it becomes exponential at some point. It's just heading it, for everybody. It,
0: it does. And these are just, they're just not nice people, some of them. And life's too short to deal with that. So um, curating is the part of the process about deciding what what we're not going to do, what work we're not going to do, what customers we're not going to have.
1: And that ties to um, some of the things we do in our world. Like because uh, I've noticed that where some of the teams struggle, it's it's the product genesis piece. It's where the pro- where the ideas are coming into the team, and. Yep. Um, not saying that we can turn away work, but that's where things like the definition of ready come into play for our in our agile world, where I have these five or six five or six um attributes that need to be complete in order for me to take in your work. And teams yeah. that have a good, solid definition of ready that is public and it's available and everybody knows yeah. you have you have the the not excuse, but you have the rationale to toss something out of your process because it's like, look, mm. I need A, B, C D and E, and you sent me two out of five. So
0: yeah. Oh, oh, but can't, can you just make a start and I'll get that to you later?
1: And then what uh, happens? Well, well no, yep. no,
0: <laughs> because then I'm going to have to put it down and come back to it. And we've got switching costs. We've got all sorts of things.
1: Right. And, yeah. and all that does is that's like the idle guy picking up another ticket because he's got, yep. no, you're just putting more, you're putting strain into the system. That's not. Yeah so so Graham let me ask you this I mean it's a short book it's an easy read and get my yeah. God there's all these life life altering uh, um, bond mods to take it here what what's next for you
0: well um, I've I've got a, a couple more books on the go um, one is and we, we touched on it briefly earlier this this need to get the uh, to have happy customers, happy staff, and a happy bank account. And unfortunately, what happens or seems to happen in lots of businesses is you've got the, the CFO saying, well, to get a happy bank account, we need to lift our prices and, and cut our costs. And then you've got the, the people who are in charge of the customers saying, well, if we want to keep our customers happy, we need to offer more value. So we've got to cut our price. And we've got to offer more service, so we need more hours from our people. And then you've got the HR people saying, well, we need to spend more money on our people and we need them to spend less time at work. (laughs) And all all of a sudden, um, you've got these, these major clashes between keeping our staff happy, keeping our customers happy, keeping our profit where it should be and keeping our staff happy, Or keeping our profit where it should be, and keeping our customers happy, and having the the overall view uh, to understand that all three are none is more important than the others, but they all rely so heavily on each other.
1: Right. All tightly coupled. Expanding that, and
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, And you know, at the end of the day, the profit is the last last piece of it. your, your staff, your, your customers, rather, if they're happy, that tells you how we're doing right now. And if your staff are unhappy, that's a, that's a bit of a heads up as to where the business is going to be in six months' time.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Um, oh, good. So, so that's, that's fantastic. We, we look forward to having you on again when the next book, uh, the oh, next book or books that, come out. so That, um, that would be wonderful. To, to wrap us up, Graham, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more about you, maybe they want to, maybe they want to pick your brain. Uh, where do they go yeah. to find you?
0: Um, I'm, I'm Graham, grahamwscott.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I think should be reasonably easy to find. Um, I'm sure there'll be a, a, an email address on the, the show notes. Yep. So yeah, by all means, um, fire something through, we can have a zoom and a catch up. Um, and if, if you've read the book, we'll have a good, good starting place.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So once again, uh, grandma, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been so much fun. It's great to great to see you and great to chat. Um, Looking forward to, to seeing more of, of the work you develop. On behalf of Graham, myself, I want to tune out, thank all of you listeners for tuning in once again. You know the deals. Thank shout out to Krebs for doing our outro music. Find us on Discord, get into the conversation. We've had some really good dialogue thus far. Uh, we do have a Patreon. We actually now have a new Patreon level where um, While we are committed to being free, once a quarter, we'll send you some swag. So maybe you get some shirts or socks or something. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe I'll send you one of my books that's all highlighted with notes, the secret to my genius. Uh, So once again, and thank you, Graham. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. Thank you very much.